Volunteerism, missionary work, and other forms of aid often carry colonial and racist undertones. Is there a way to volunteer time while traveling that's ethical? Is the aid sector entirely bad? You're listening to Alpaca My Bags. I'm your host, Erin, and today we're exploring ethical aid. Last season, we talked with Wendy and Olivia from the campaign No White Saviors. Their campaign was birthed out of a collective frustration at the rampant abuses committed by white missionaries and development workers in Uganda and beyond. They created the No White Saviors campaign to disrupt traditional power structures between the Western world and the African continent. Since that conversation with Wendy and Olivia, I've wondered about something called ethical aid. Today, we are chatting with a humanitarian aid worker and ethical aid educator. She is an advocate for reformed approaches to aid. We're going to hear her perspective on the history of aid and development, and we'll talk about the ethical guidelines and principles that are required for aid to be non-colonial and to avoid white saviorism. And we'll talk a little bit more about volunteerism. So Claire, do you want to share with everyone your background? Yeah, sure. So I've worked in humanitarian aid for about eight years and also a little bit in development around Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, West Africa, specifically in response to natural disasters. As a consultant, I specialize in assessing the impacts and evaluating aid projects. And as an ethical aid educator, I speak and train enthusiasts and stakeholders about the benefits of evaluating aid. And I'm also quite a strong supporter of the localization agenda. So Claire, in our No White Saviors episode, we touched on international aid, but as a follow-up, I think it'd be helpful to share with our alpaca pals a sort of definition of it. Um, How do you define aid and development, and are there distinctions between these two concepts? Yeah, so international aid references the sector of activities, associated policies, financing, people, organizations, basically the the sector that's um, engaged in humanitarian response and development work. And that distinction between humanitarian aid and development aid is quite helpful, both when you're talking about the sector and when you're within the sector. So in humanitarian aid, this is typically a rapid response to a sudden onset disaster, which could be either natural or man-made, and is protected under international humanitarian law. And it typically is involving like meeting a gap between what is needed. So what was there and then what after a sudden crisis is there now? Whereas development aid is typically all the activities engaged in improving the lives and well-beings of communities in line with the sustainable development goals set by the UN. And this is often integrated into statecraft and national development agendas for low middle income countries. So, for example, improving the access to maternal health services for disabled women would be a development activity. Whereas a humanitarian response activity would be providing like a specific delivery space or neonatal care service for a displaced population after a flood. So I guess like in a way, humanitarian aid is more short term and development is looking more long term. Yeah, that's a really good clarification to to help. And I think that that stands true, even though there has been a sort of like bridging activity that's been done in the sector to try and bridge humanitarian response into ongoing development activities, which is sometimes put under the banner of resilience building. And you call yourself an ethical aid educator. What is this distinction between ethical aid and I guess like what would be considered non-ethical aid? 
I'm not sure the distinction of ethical aid to non-ethical aid is, is how I would put it. There are ethics sort of enshrined within the aid structure already. So there are the humanitarian principles, for example, which are humanity, neutrality, independence, and impartiality, which is kind of like the Hippocratic Oath for aid work, right? So we try and do no harm and we do all of our actions based on the principles of humanity, uh, neutrality, independence, and impartiality. There's also the core humanitarian charter, which is an ethical and legal code of conduct to, for the actors that are involved in aid to adhere to. And all of our activities are defined by the sphere standards, um, which are kind of like agreed minimum standards for the sort of core activities that you could do under the different types of sectors. So this could be like food, health, water, and sanitation. There are ethical elements already sort of folded into the very concept and history of aid. I think what ethical aid is sort of bringing is this new perspective. So it allows us an alternative lens with which to design and implement and assess the impact of humanitarian and development aid programs. So like if you if you look at kind of the what I just said about the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm seems to be quite like a blank bottom like line like it's it's literally quite a low bar if you think about it i just don't want to do any harm um and so i think ethical aid as a movement is really asking the people involved in that sector to raise that standard i think it also helps to think about it like if you're working in the aid sector quite a lot of things can go unscrutinized if you are going to morally justify your actions by the end like the ends justify the means you end up having like this very big blank check where it's like, oh, well, you're trying to solve hunger, so you can just do anything. Whereas if you're asking um, people to put aside that greater good argument, then you can center in the discussion the situational ethics of the actors involved and then strive for a focus on incremental impact through regular evaluation and assessment in order to ensure that you're not just not doing harm, but you're actually doing well. And how did you end up working in ethical aid? So I started working in AIDS. Um, I was actually working in like a completely different sector. I have an undergraduate degree in philosophy and I, I was working in publishing. Um, as, so something completely different. And then I um, entered the AIDS sector through academia. So I became really interested in the policies that sort of govern the sector. Did some master's programs, some postgraduate programs, and I was working on menstrual health management in emergency response. And that's when the Ebola virus um, disease outbreak happened in um, West Africa. So that's when I joined UNFPA and then I joined UNOCHA and then I worked for NGOs. So I see ethical aid as sort of the perfect union between my background in philosophy and my interest in morality as a subject, but also my sort of tangible work in, in the aid sector. That's interesting because like from what I know and from friends that I know who studied international development, that tends to be the educational background for people who go on to work in, in aid and development. The philosophy element probably helps you to navigate like how to do your work ethically in a way that people who wouldn't have that background might not necessarily, they wouldn't have the same tool set that you have with that kind of philosophical background. So when we talked with No White Saviors, a lot of the conversation was about a specific type of aid slash development worker. And I, 
I'm going to preface this by saying like a lot of it was actually about missionary workers and volunteerists. Um, and I think what I discovered in that conversation is that we need to properly distinguish um, between missionary work, volunteer work and proper aid slash development workers. And that's something that we didn't actually talk about in that episode that I'd like to clear up in this one. So can you explain the differences between these roles? Yeah, I shall do my best. So a missionary, um, which is defined as a person that's sent by a church into an area to carry the sort of evangelical message, usually doing works like educational works or hospital works. But the underlying intention or um, reason for doing it, for lack of a sort of better language, is uh, to persuade or to convert other people to a certain set of principles. So I would say that's different from humanitarian and development work because humanitarian and development work is governed by impartiality principles. So one of the things we have to do is ensure that we're giving, you know, specifically not to try and get people to do something else. <laughs> um, whereas uh, volunteers, which is the other one, they're kind of defined by their unemployment. I think that's quite a helpful way of thinking about it. So within the AIDS sector, you do have unpaid interns or unpaid labor, but these are not classified as volunteers because they're contracted and employed by an actor that sets their work, manages their conduct and monitors the impact of the activities they're doing. So we usually would have, for example, people in an affected community who are working unpaid on a project, or maybe you might have uh, an unpaid intern doing a six-month contract um, at a head office. Um, I would still personally include those people within the aid sector. And that aid sector includes the sort of typical actors that are recognized are the UN, international NGOs, the Red Cross, and obviously the locally affected communities and their community service organizations. Yeah. And so to circle back to that discussion with Wendy and Olivia from No White Saviors, they highlighted in that talk a few of the ways in which aid and development goes wrong. And I think when when we were talking about like aid and development, really, we were talking about the sort of broader spectrum of people who go to foreign countries to help. And a lot of that discussion was about how this intention to help can sometimes swing into the territory of white saviorism. And I want to recap a few of the points that they made. A big point that they made was that the motivations of people who do this are often self-serving. Um, and this is something that we see specifically in mission work and also volunteers. And like, I think this also touches on volunteerism. People come for a brief amount of time to have a self-serving experience um, rather than contributing actually needed skills or skills that were specifically requested. Another point that they made is about control of narrative. Aid is often used to create a narrative of white saviorism. So white development workers are positioned as saviors and the communities receiving the aid are portrayed as impoverished and unable to help themselves. That might be an extreme description, but that's, I think it's helpful to make it extreme for people to understand. And the issue with this is that it reinforces othering and other colonial attitudes and tones. 
And then the last uh, large point that they made was that oftentimes people seen working in development are not actually qualified. And this, I think, circles back to the point you're making about distinguishing people's roles within foreign aid and development. So in their words, good intentions are not good enough. So development workers should have skills that are actually required in the region that they are working in. And I think this is where we see some people going into sketchy territory when they end up working in foreign aid. Do you have anything to add to these points or any context you want to add to them? I mean, I think No Wife Saviors did a really great job of of isolating those key points on your episodes. Um, and I think it's important um, if we are to do aid ethically is to seek out those those critiques and to meet them head on and if required to change what we're doing. And that's, I mean, not doing that is probably the epitome of, of white privilege, right? Um, the colonial overtones within the aid system have been like pretty consistently proven. The colonial bias in the way that funding is decided has been like essentially found in every foreign aid allocation study that's been done. People who share a previous like colonial history, they tend to favor POCC, so previously occupied and colonized countries. So former colonizers sort of conduct foreign policy towards their former colonies. Um, and studies have shown that their uh, previous colonizers are more likely to intervene in civil conflicts, more likely to provide foreign aid, will impose fewer visa restrictions, will sign trade deals into being. They're more likely to do that favorably for previously occupied and colonized countries. And have you witnessed any of these issues in practice in your work? I think a good example of something that I'm sure everyone in aid witnesses, um, it's kind of hard to address how this would change because it's not really at the feet of one particular person. It's not like you can point to somebody and say like, they were doing something obviously bad. You have to engage with the system as a whole as one that has these roots in colonial and um, current power structures. Um, so one of the things I see quite regularly is that when proposals are developed, they're proposals that are geared towards what the donor is already looking for. And that particular like agenda, that program, that policy has been decided by, you know, usually some like quite a few select people whose job it is to um, sort of study the context, country or conflict that we're talking about. And then to decide on behalf of the donors what would be the best project of activities. And often these are actually enshrined into like up to five year long development programs which aren't then assessed until the end what it misses is this this key part about being accountable to the locally affected community even though we have monitoring evaluation accountability and learning in the project that is almost always geared towards proving that the program is a success it's geared towards reinforcing what the donor has suggested as opposed to actually engaging with the activities and their impact in sort of like a a tangible way that's specifically asking the affected communities, how would you like to have your aid rendered? How would you like to have these funds spent? And you mentioned earlier that a big part of the ethical aid movement is encapsulated in the localization agenda. Could you explain what the localization agenda is and how it differs from previous, previous iterations of international aid? Yeah, the localization agenda came out of the World Humanitarian Summit. And the whole localization agenda is to put communities that are affected by the aid back in control of their own aid agenda. And that's one of the things that I really 
care about. I think it, it could be a very important moment um, in aid would be to return quite a lot of the decision-making process, um, including how we design, implement, and assess programs. That could be technical and it can also be taken in quite a political place. Um, I think that, that that was something that that quite a lot of literature is making. There's a shifting of power, which feels quite political. It goes back to changing the political economy of humanitarian. It has to be a political action, but it can also be technical. It's also about how do you design your projects? The whole localization agenda is, I mean, it's, it's huge. You could run a whole podcast just on that. But I think that's kind of how I would sum it up my interest in it in a nutshell. Yeah. And I think that what you're describing responds a little bit to something that Wendy and Olivia brought up, which is the fact that oftentimes aid is not in the hands of local communities to have a say in how that aid is actually working in their community. And it seems like the point of the localization agenda is to respond to this criticism. Yeah, definitely. And I think to do that could be, could actually involve like hiring the the standard of, um, critique that we're we're currently doing like as i said if you're evaluating a program by its internal results and performance indicators it's going to show like a complete and comprehensive program but if you're taking that wider focus and accountability strain quite strongly then you're also going to be looking at the unintended outcomes of what you've been delivering or what you've been working on so like an example of this is quite a common indicator would be like the number of latrines that you've built in a camp but if you are then asking the number of latrines that have been built that are accessible to everyone in the community. You're adding a qualitative indicator or an element of indicator that requires that you actually ask the people who are using the latrines, are you using them? And if not, why? And who isn't using them? And maybe it's people who are affected with disabilities or people who you know, are the elderly or people who are socially stigmatized. There could be any number of subgroups that are not being able to access the infrastructure that you have built. Um, so you can implement this within the current aid that you're doing. That's what I want to take away from it. Like ethical aid shouldn't be thought of as an alternative. It should be thought of as a way of improving what we are doing through this engagement with local actors in a in a meaningful way, not just lip service. And I think like it also has a more long-term effect or long-term approach because they're actually returning and looking at whether the work they've done has been productive. Whereas like I know that a lot of these um, volunteers that will go on two-week trips, you know, they'll go and they'll build something and they'll leave and they'll never know what happened to that that thing that they built like if it was actually helpful to that community yeah exactly and I mean my guess is that if it's being built even if just in part to to allow you something to build it's probably not because it's actually needed I mean the amount of shoddy infrastructure I've seen turned over to local communities just because a project wasn't self-critical it's quite devastating when you think about all of the resources that have gone into it all the time that's that's a bit heartbreaking I think and obviously if it's within your community and you're seeing that you know, it affects the way that you feel about these people coming in and out of your community. Like a revolving door is is a, is a visual that Emily's used. That's Emily from Two Dusty Travelers, who I think you've also had on the, the podcast. Hey, we're popping in for a quick break. If you didn't already know, A Pack of My Bags is an indie show. Our team consists of me, Aaron, 
And well, that's about it. Katie, how long have we been making this show now? Uh, I think about 100 years, but I think it's been somewhere around the two-year mark, right? We're in season three. Where are we at, Aaron? I looked recently and we've made now 60 episodes. I can't even believe that. It feels like just <laughs> yesterday when I met you in that coffee shop for a tea. I know. So, Alpaca Pals, for over these last however many years it's been, we've been working really hard to make sure we find the best guests to help us learn as a community how to be responsible travelers. Our goal is always to make fun and educational content that brings diverse perspectives to your ears. Lots of research and coordination and time goes into making alpaca my bags. There's a lot of emailing back and forth. There's a lot of scripting. There's a lot of editing. In total, every episode takes 10 or more hours to make. And about like five clumps of hair, right? (laughs) Yes, often. Sometimes tears on my end, but (laughs) we don't need to get into that right now. Anyway... (laughs) A bit of money here and there can help us to dedicate a bit less time to freelance work and more time to this show, because believe me, we would both rather be working on Alpaca My Bags. So how can you help? Sign up and give us monthly support on Patreon. Now, what the heck is Patreon? Well, it's a platform where you can subscribe to monetarily support your favorite creators on a monthly basis. Uh, So right now, if you want to, you can open up your podcast app, scroll right down to the bottom of this episode's description, and click the link that says support the show on Patreon. The cool thing about modern technology these days and phones is that you can actually listen to podcasts and browse the internet at the same time, so you can sign up to Patreon right now and keep listening to this show at the same very moment. It's super simple to do. All you have to do is click the link and then choose a tier from $5 a month up to 25. And each tier includes some awesome incentives and gifts. For example, you can access behind the scenes content or early announcements, and you can submit questions to upcoming guests. And the best part is you can book a video call with Katie or me or both of us. And we can talk about literally anything you want. I mean, Erin is an expert on travel, as you know. I am an expert on podcasts, as I hope you know. (laughs) Or you can just chat with us about anything. Like, we can help you with your relationships. We can talk about, (laughs) right? Like, what else can we talk about, Erin? I can 100% talk about cats. Uh, If we have a video call, you can meet my cats, Crumpet and Annie. I can meet your cats, or maybe you have a dog, or maybe you have a fish you want to introduce me to. Let's do it. I would love this to be the first video call we book, so please sign up to Patreon right now. If you love this show, please become a patron. You can find more information through the link in the description of this episode. Also, shout out to Tommy. He already signed up for a Patreon. Tommy, we're going to be messaging you. We need to have that video call. A couple years ago, I was in New Orleans and I was flying back and was in line to go through security. And behind me was a group of people who were also going through security and they were all wearing these t-shirts saying that they, I'm pretty sure they were a mission group, but they were headed to Haiti. And I ended up talking with them and they told me that they were so excited to go to Haiti because they were going to be building homes for people. Like I had to bite my tongue because I, I had just spent like a week couch surfing in New Orleans, learning about how there was so still so much rebuilding to be done in New Orleans, like following 
the devastation that had happened there. And I just felt like there was such gross irony to be talking to like these missionaries who were going to go to another country to build homes when there are like so many homes that need to be built in their own city. And I felt that this like was such a blatant example of the ways in which foreign aid can go wrong. And that's the thing. They don't really constitute aid is what I'm learning in this discussion. Like they were a completely different thing. It looked like they were a missionary group sponsored by a church to be going to do this work. Yeah. But I think, I mean, if if you're confused by that, then can you imagine what the local community they're going to in Haiti would feel like? As a community, you're going to see these people coming in and build. I mean, I guarantee you that somebody who lives in a place that has cyclical disasters that might result in infrastructure damage has a better grasp of how to rebuild a shelter than like a high schooler from a church in wherever, right? I guarantee you that that knowledge is already there. But it's going to be really confusing. I mean, if it's confusing for you, it's my point, it's going to be confusing for, you know, the locally affected population who are then going to judge all aid by the way that these people are. And I think it's a good time to segue into volunteerism, I think, because this is something that comes up often whenever we ask listeners what they want to learn about. It's always volunteerism. I think that people are attracted to it because they want to feel like they've used their travels to do good. And a lot of people view volunteerism as an opportunity for that. I mean, when we talk to Wendy and Olivia, they reinforce that like, no, it's oftentimes not. You're not actually doing good. You may be doing good for yourself. I mean, look, there there are always going to be people that want to go abroad and pretend that they're on like a mission and they want to just like get the photo of an African baby and boost their ego and get people from home, start telling them how great they are. I think just for like my own mental health, I have to really like filter those people out a little bit because no matter what I say, they're going to do what they want to do. And unfortunately, the people that can stop that from happening are, you know, local government in the place they want to go to that makes it harder and harder for them to go to that place. When somebody comes to me and asks me about volunteering, it's almost always because they come to me because I'm an aid worker and full-time in aid and they want to know how, how I do what I do. And so to those people, I have like really helpful things to tell them like this what what is a bad thing to do would be to go and do this on like a two-week holiday that's not going to show what you want as an employer so now that i'm actually like hiring people and things like that i i'm now sitting at it from across the desk being like oh okay this person did like a two-week Ghana trip or something i'm probably not going to take that as serious work experience there are loads of other ways that you can build your your cv as as an aid worker And there are loads of other ways that you can help a community that you want to go and visit that don't involve doing unpaid labor for a brief period of time on like a mission or a volunteerism thing. While we're on this, you had mentioned to me earlier that there are like high barriers of access to actually work in foreign aid and development. Can you tell us what these barriers of access are? Yeah, so to work in in aid uh, for any sort of like reputable actor, you're going to need at least one master's. You're going to need at least two fluent languages, um, a period of experience. So we do get a lot of people who are social workers or nurses or in administration and project management in, that work with vulnerably housed in their own countries who then might, might like 
be able to take a kind of lateral step into the aid sector. And apart from those barriers to entry, you're also going to have um, a proper onboarding process. So any organization you're joining, even if you're an unpaid intern, you should be expecting a proper onboarding process, which includes things like, um, as a minimum, PSEA training. So that's preventing sexual exploitation and abuse training. You would be expected to uh, take a briefing on the country that you are going to so that you are aware of like the basic history, the basic geography, the basic language. Um, I would say that that is kind of a double-edged sword um, while I'm here um, because obviously getting a master's is, is a lot easier for me. I, I mean, I'm white and I'm British. Education is is very privileged. Like a lot of people don't have access to education. And so that means that some people don't have access to this field to begin with. Yeah, exactly. And also if you're um if you're needing this experience, then you also have to be able to like take an unpaid internship in a foot with like the UN or something, potentially in like New York or Geneva, which are very expensive places. You have to be able to travel, you have passport privilege. So if you are like Canadian, for example, you're gonna be able to just go and work in other places easier than other than, you know, someone who might be Malawian, for example. And I'm using Malawian specifically because they don't allow you to have dual citizenship. I think while we're on barriers to entry, though, it might also be be worth saying, like, if when you see a national or a local government that makes those barriers to entry equally high for expatriate staff, you end up having a very different, like, ecosystem that's around aid. Because when, when I go and I work in countries like um, Nepal is a great example they have quite high barriers to be able to actually start an NGO and operate it. Whereas if you're looking at like Uganda, where where Olivia joined you from, the barriers for actually setting up your own NGO to do work, very low. In Nepal, as an example, you would need to have um, an operational agreement with the local social council which would need to approve your activities for the three years. You have financial audits, you have HR policies, you need to have so many um, local Nepali staff on your roster. There's usually like a ratio that comes with that. Um, whereas in in other places, uh, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, those barriers to entry from like a legal level are, are quite low. So I think it would be also interesting to to take those comparisons to heart and to really think about the ways that governments can protect their own aid sector. That's really interesting. And I guess that kind of points to why we see these sort of hotspots for development. Because when I think about like the amount of times that I've heard of tourists going to volunteer in Nepal, it's not that often. I hear it mostly about like, like you said, Uganda and other parts of sub-Saharan Africa. And then some countries in Southeast Asia seem to be regions where um, people can very easily go and just donate their time. I think a great way to wrap things up would be to talk about the alternatives to volunteerism, because I think the sentiment of travelers wanting to find a way to do good or to give back while they travel isn't going to go anywhere. I think most of us idealize travel as something that is capable of that. I'm just going to say it absolutely shouldn't go anywhere. Like, I think that's important. Like, it's great if you want to go to a place and do something that I'm using air quotes for all the listeners when you want to give back because you're traveling somewhere that like, you really like that's absolutely you know there's nothing wrong with that sentiment but there are there is ways that you can do it as a tourist without having to like 
play pretend at an aid worker. That's a really good way of phrasing it. Play pretend at an aid worker. <laughs> okay. So yeah, what are ways that you would say um, tourists should be shifting their focus when they're looking to give back to communities as they travel? When you are traveling somewhere as a tourist, particularly if you are um, traveling somewhere where you're exercising other privilege as well, this is a great opportunity for you to activate that in a in a way as a tourist. For example, um, if you are repeatedly going to places over time, you are building up a quite a, a strong case for national development, to national policies, to uh, invest in infrastructure to make decisions about safety, protection. There are ways that you can influence those things um, over the long term, which you can only do as a tourist. There are things I cannot do as an aid worker that you can do as a tourist. And I strongly encourage you to do those. And that's things like, I can't be critical of a, of a place if I'm working there as an aid, um, as an aid worker. Even on my downtime, there is no off time for me. I am always being going to be seen as a representative of whichever NGO or government I'm there with. But you can. You can be thoughtful about what you say and how you say and where you spend your money. You can choose not to go and travel, for example, in Myanmar, which I know is something that you've, you've spoken about before. You can choose to uh, go off the beaten track, again, air quotes, off the beaten track, to a place which is lacking in infrastructure, where over time, the local governance and the national governance could actually end up taking that as a hint to start building roads. I have a maybe a good way of illustrating this. I was in South Madagascar on deployment. The region I was deployed in doesn't have any way of getting in and out. You have to fly in and out. And there were times when I was there, I, I, was, I was on a value chain, which is like a food and livelihoods model of development and resilience building. I was there to do that. I just kept thinking like, you know, what? if there was tourists coming here, like there are to the north of Madagascar and Nosy Bay, we would have a road. We would have electricity. We would have schools. People could leave here and go to the north of the island without having to get a flight. I mean, over time, you would really see SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, being fulfilled by the, the local community and by the national community. And I mean, it got to the point where I was like, maybe I should just quit aid and like invest in a local lodge and just get people down here to surf all the time. Like the only road in this region was was built by Chinese investors in the mine. And this mine was one of the only employers in the region. So you end up kind of stuck in, stuck in this cycle of vulnerability, which having like tourists come there, therefore tourism infrastructure being built up would mean that protection of rainforests would become suddenly important or investment in infrastructure would become suddenly important. I guess that's kind of like big picture. And the thing is that people tend to want the things that are a little bit more tangible. So I did some thinking and I came up with exactly two times when you could tangibly quote unquote make a difference in a community you're going to without it having a long-term detrimental effect through waste duplication or devaluation in the local economy, which are the, the sort of three critiques I have of volunteerism. So the two ways that you could do this as a volunteer from not that place to the place where you're in is one, unskilled mass labor doing something like a beach cleanup. 
So not everywhere has a beach. Not everywhere uh, that has a beach necessarily prioritizes the ecosystem of the beach for whatever reason. If you're a tourist that wants to volunteer some of their time, linking up with a beach cleanup is actually like a great way of spending a day. You're going to get to do it alongside the people that probably live and work on that beach. You're probably going to get into some really interesting conversations with people. Um, you're going to get a chance to, to share what you believe is an important message because beach cleanups are hella important. And you're going to have a really like rewarding experience emotionally as a person's doing that. And that is a good example because there's no one there that's being paid to do that if a beach cleanup is being organized. But over time, you doing that will build up the necessity for that to become a thing that the local government takes on or a thing that the local organization takes on. The second one is skilled labor in exchange. So this is, I guess you could talk about it like a cultural exchange. It's where you are coming to learn from, let's say, the clinic, and they are also learning from you. What you're not doing is you're not coming there as someone that is not skilled, not qualified, and doing something that they in wherever you are, are capable of doing. The point is to share learning. But that was literally like after weeks of thinking about it. It's like these are the two situations. I can think of the very specific situations. I would probably as a tourist just want to go and like have a really good time and be thoughtful about who you're giving your money to. Don't spend time on cruises. Go to local homestays, you know, use use local cafes. Like those are are also tangible ways of of using your tourism in a way that is not harmful and is sustainable. Yeah. And like you say, there won't always be tangible results from this because they're such micro actions that you're taking. But long term, I think that they can have real impact. And you see this happening, especially in Europe, I've noticed cities that are becoming overwhelmed by over-tourism, for example. My family is Dutch, so I use Holland as an example often. But I've noticed that in recent years, tourists have started going more to cities outside of Amsterdam. And that's because somewhere along the line, a tourist did that and realized, oh, I can go to another city and see another part of this incredible country. And that started a sort of trend, which slowly, slowly develops. But ultimately, we'll have a great impact because it's going to reduce the amount of over-tourism that you see happening in Amsterdam, which has been very severe as of late. People have to remember that even though these actions, like spending your money locally or going to a homestay or teaching someone else your skills, you might not see tangible results, but you can be rest assured that in the long term, there will be positive impact from that. And I think actually this this European example is is quite helpful to think about. Like in Europe, you I don't know if it's just the UK or if it's actually a wider European push, but there's this city of culture that's announced. I think it's like every three years or something. And then you you what if you win that as a city, you get a whole bunch of like infrastructure development done. So I think like Liverpool was one of them. You kind of build it, they will come principles, and more tourists end up going to that place, which they weren't previously going to. Um, so that really proves the value that tourism can bring to a place and the kind of impetus it can have in the development. So when you think about it like that, you'll note that that example is not in a lower middle income country. That example is on my front yard. You can have uh, global aspirations to like make the world a better place, but it starts at home. You think global, but you act local. 
There are so many things you can do on your front doorstep that will make a big difference to people's lives. If you want to be a tourist somewhere, go be a tourist somewhere. You don't have to, as I say, play pretend being an aid worker. You can still do good as a tourist. I hope you enjoyed learning from Claire about ethical aid. If you haven't already, go back to season two of this show to listen to our episode that features Wendy and Olivia from No White Saviors. It's an important one for learning about how the aid sector has impacted Ugandan communities. My guest today was Claire Travers. If you want to hear more from her, you can check out her ethical aid blog and soon-to-be podcast. It's called The Ethical Aid Project. You can find them at The Ethical Aid Project on Instagram. You can also subscribe to her podcast, Poly Pages with one L, which is a polyamorous book club podcast. I've included the link in the show notes. And follow Claire on Instagram at Claire L. Travers. If you're enjoying this show, go ahead and leave a review on your podcast app or show us your love on Patreon. Pledging $5 a month or more directly supports the making of this show. The link to our Patreon is in the show notes. Alpaca My Bags is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and produced by Katie Lore. That's all for now, Alpaca Pals. I'll talk to you again in two weeks, and I hope you all get to alpaca your bags safely and soon.